question is, where do you find God? Well, I find God when I go running, uh, especially uh, like those uh, nice natural trails. When I'm with my family at the movies. Most of the time, I find God in stories and narrative, and movie makers are some of the cream of the crop storytellers in our day and age, so movies. I feel like when I'm alone in my room, sitting on my bed, I experience God the most. I find God in my marriage. Coffee shops, because I like people. That's where people kind of, to me, come alive and start talking about what they really feel in a coffee shop. I meet God there. Well, good morning. Let me say welcome to everybody who is joining us online or at one of our other campuses or in the room at South Park. So glad you're here. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors. And that is the question we're exploring on our march toward Easter is where do you find God? And what we've begun to find out and what we're exploring each week is that God tends to show up in power in some of the most unexpected places. We began looking last week at and how some of those places are the ones that were actually painful in the moment or, or the places where instead of showing up with a big bang, God comes in quietly. We talked about the fact that you can always find God in humility. And on the screen behind me are pictures of various places that you guys have said you could find God, whether it's in sometimes even a car wreck or, or that moment of celebration and joy. It's in the most unsuspecting of days. That got me thinking this past week about one of my favorite ways that we get surprised by things happening in an unexpected location is with marriage proposals. And so I asked you this past week, anybody who would share with me the best story you have about someone asking somebody else to marry them. And so glad, thank you for, for what you've done in sharing that. If you follow us on Instagram, if you don't, you need to jump on it. But if you do, continue to engage with us. It's Forest Hill at Instagram, on Instagram, it's at Forest Hill Church. And if you don't follow us on YouTube or subscribe, jump on that right now. And don't just log on to the link, but be a part of what we're doing. Because all week, we're trying to get more content to you. But some of the best stories came through this week. I can only share two, and I expect that you're gonna have reactions to what I say. I know this is second service. Folks are watching online, this is later. You're not as asleep as the first group on daylight savings time. So I expect you're either gonna have an awe or an awe to these next two stories, okay? First one, Andrew and Amy. Andrew decided to surprise Amy with where he would ask her to marry him. And so he shows up at her parents' house on Christmas morning. Who expects to get proposed to on Christmas morning? Andrew came with a box that was decorated like a present that was about this tall. And inside his parents or his soon-to-be in-law's living room, he sat inside the box for an hour because Amy just didn't think it was that interesting, this huge box. And so finally, by the time the parents get her to go over, she grabs a kitchen knife and goes to stab and open. And the dad's like, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. You don't want to do that. And then she opens the box and her first reaction is, there's a person in here. But Andrew's been squatted down for an hour, so he's lost all blood flow and no circulation. When he goes to stand up, he just falls over. And that's the way that their life started together. It's an amazing thing. Second, and this story is really good, I think, especially for our topic today. David and Trina. 
Trina told me the story about how this happened. Uh, they were kind of at that place where she knew it, the, the question had to be coming, you know? It was moving that way. She was ready. So they go on a trip to the beach, and they go to a really nice dinner, and at that dinner, nothing happens. There's no ring in the champagne glass or the cake, nothing like that. So she assumes, well, maybe it's, it's not today. It's Friday of their beach weekend. They leave the restaurant and go for a walk on the beach, and as they're walking, David looks at her, and he says, I don't want to be your boyfriend anymore. Right? Trina's telling the story to me and she says, I gave him a weird look. The eyebrow cocked. I backed away just a little bit. And she said, all that was going through my head is I've got to find a ride home because there's no way I'm spending the rest of the time with this guy. He goes on to try to say he was talking to somebody he found really wise, an older guy, and, and he felt like that he really helped him to understand that he didn't want to be her boyfriend anymore because he wanted to be her husband. There's the awe, right? So he drops on the knee, and, and the rest is history. Sometimes the most profound things happen in the most unexpected places and moments, don't they? The story that we're going to be looking at today as we continue this is one of those. It's actually the story of a party that nobody would expect. None of you or I have ever been to a party like this one. We're going to look at the cast of characters that's involved. We're going to look at an incredible action that nobody saw coming. And just like Jesus' life and then his death and resurrection, for 2,000 years, we're still talking about it because we can't get over this. This is how God shows up. So before I jump into the passage, we're going to be looking at John 12, verses 1 through 8. It'll be on the screen for you. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand up. But before I do, I want to set some context. One chapter before, in John 11, Jesus has done one of the most stunning miracles of all of his time on earth. He's raised a guy named Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus. Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they live in a town called Bethany. It's about two miles outside of Jerusalem. The week that we catch up to this story is Passover week. It's the biggest celebration in the Jewish history and culture. And all week long, there's all kinds of events that take place. It builds in, uh, in anticipation toward the climax of the Passover event itself. But also mirroring this is the story of Jesus. And we saw last week, he enters Jerusalem on a donkey in a really strange way, setting up this week of events that nobody could see coming. He comes with this humility and peace and all the crowd that's been ready for him to take his rightful place as king and kick out all the Romans and just kind of set everything right. They're, they're waiting and, and he doesn't show up that way. Well, the whole week long, Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem in the morning. He teaches, he does some other stuff that we'll see over the next few weeks that's wild. But every night, in order maybe to avoid being captured too early, Jesus goes back to Bethany and he spends the night there. The reason I say that he's avoiding being captured too early is that when he raised Lazarus from the dead, it was such a stunning moment that more and more people started following him. He, his fame gained. He had a, a crowd that began to just believe this power. This had to be the guy. He was Messiah, possibly. And right at that moment, the religious leaders, the Pharisees said, we got to kill him. In fact, not only did they decide to kill Jesus, they decided they would kill Lazarus too. They wanted to remove both the enemy and the evidence. So one night, standing there in Bethany, Jesus goes to a party. 
And that's where we pick up the story in John 12. I'm going to ask if you're able, would you stand as we read? John 12, starting in verse 1. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet, and she wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Little note that John makes here. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This is God's word. You can be seated. The dinner party unlike any other dinner party. This story is recounted in two other gospels. The gospels are just biographies of Jesus' life. And we're gonna look at one of those. It's found in Mark 14 and in Matthew 26. I'm gonna show you some things from Matthew, kind of like we're interviewing eyewitnesses at the scene. It's not that when you read the Bible, if there's some details in one account and not the other, it doesn't mean that it did or didn't happen. It's just you're talking to people who from different angles saw the event and they wrote down what stuck out to them. So whenever you come across these, it's helpful to not try to say that there must be a problem with the scripture, it's let me find out how this person wants to give me more detail. So we're gonna begin looking first at this unexpected cast of characters. First, Simon the leper. Now you didn't read him in John 12. Let me show you where he comes in. Matthew 26, six says this, talking about the same event. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. Now we spent a lot of time in our kids area back there explaining this is not Simon the Leopard, which is what five-year-olds hear usually, and they think a big cat with spots. Simon the Leper was a man who experienced one of the most dreaded diseases known to man at that time. From 600 BC on, leprosy is the thing that would cause you to become an outcast like nothing else. Leprosy is a bacterial infection. It attacks the nervous system and it exposes itself on the skin. It leads to rotting, decomposing skin, earlobes, noses, lips. It makes its way around the body of someone infected by it until the fingers and the, the toes begin to curl. It's a crippling disease that you cannot hide. Leprosy often didn't kill a person but it never stopped. Leprosy in the scripture is often uh, symbolic of sin. Various ways you can hide it or, or sometimes you can't, but over time, it does the decomposing of the soul. And Jesus was always, throughout his ministry, we have so many accounts of him moving towards people with leprosy. 
A, a, a leprous person usually had to live in a colony outside of the city, away from everyone else, because it was so contagious that if someone touched you, it would be spread to them. And so lepers were considered untouchable. If you walked around in the city for some reason, you had to keep your distance and you had to exclaim to people in a moment of shame how you were not allowed to be close. Stay away from me. I could kill you. I'm dangerous. Jesus, however, constantly touched lepers. It was an amazing thing about his ministry that he loved to show that that which would kill or maim or disfigure us has zero power when it comes into contact with the Son of God. His authority over it was demonstrated all the time. And Simon, most likely, was a man who had been healed of this leprosy by Jesus in the past. Now, here's what's so cool. Think about this. Simon, because of that, has never been able to go to a party, much less host a party. This event that happened where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, imagine what it would be like for Simon to say, I want to throw the dinner. I want to do the honoring celebration. Come to my house. But that would almost be like somebody who has COVID, you know, saying, I just tested positive. I have no smell. I'm coughing all over the place. Why don't you come over for pizza? Nobody's doing that. But somehow, it must have been so well known that he was healed, that Jesus had stepped in, that people show up. So Simon's unexpected. Secondly, Lazarus. Now, the, the, the story that Lazarus was raised from the dead had started to spread, obviously. But I want you to think about this. Like, don't ever just read your Bible and go straight past all these words. Think about what it means. Can you imagine sitting at a dinner with somebody who had been dead just a few days before? And I'm not talking about like they coded on the table and we got them back. I'm talking good old South Carolina, Fort Mill, you're watching South Carolina D.E.D. dead, like dead. To the point where they said that his flesh was decomposing and probably stunk. Interesting, isn't it? That Lazarus's decomposition is happening in his death and Simon's was happening in his life. And Jesus wants both of them in the room. He's not content to let either of those have the last word. What kind of questions would you ask Lazarus if you were at dinner with him? I mean, I'm thinking, like, these were real people, just like us. So what would you say? Did it hurt? Was there a bright light? Are there pets in heaven? You know, I mean, what would be going through your mind? Did you see Reuben? No, of course you didn't see Reuben. We all knew he wasn't making it. You know, whatever. You're just kind of going through the list. And then I think... Did anybody say to Lazarus, like, man, I'm sorry. Sorry, what are you talking about? I was dead and now I'm alive. Yeah, but didn't you hear? Now they want to kill you, like execute you probably through torture. You got to go through that all over again. Like in some ways, Lazarus is now going to die twice. The conversation in the former leper's house with the formerly dead guy has other cast of characters involved too. There's Martha. We know about Martha. Anybody know kind of the story of her, Martha and Mary? A lot of times we talk about the fact that it, we find Martha always serving and Mary is like doing the right thing, loving Jesus. Uh, Martha's probably an Enneagram too, you know? She's like wants to be super helpful, but she wants you to recognize that she's helpful. Like I want you to be good and I want the credit. I've told you about that before. That's what twos do. I'm a two. Um, Martha's serving, running around, probably keeping score at who's not helping. Then you got the disciples. 
Now, it's not like unlikely that they're in the room because they're following Jesus. They're just an unlikely group of people. Young, untrained, Matthew, the tax collector, the, probably the only person more untouchable and outcast than a leper is a tax collector, the traitor. He's at the table. You got zealots. It's, you've never been to a party like this. Then you got Judas. And we learned something new about Judas in this story. It's kind of fun. Judas, that the whole world knows. In fact, in culture, in common speak, the word or the name Judas like has a meaning now because of this. What does Judas mean? Type it in the chat if you're online. Say it out loud if you're in the room. What, what does Judas mean to you? What do you think? Betray, traitor, betrayal, right? And we find out something else. Not only was it a traitor, but Judas, follow me on this, Judas who proves to be the least trustworthy of the friends of Jesus, is given the job of watching the money by Jesus who knows that he's gonna betray him. Isn't that interesting? I wonder, this is just wondering, but, uh, but I wonder why Jesus gave him that job. Was there something about the way that he wanted to love him even though he knew how it would end up? Something about the fact that he knew Judas had this love of money and Jesus wanted to actually meet him in that place? Maybe the most unexpected place for Judas was his most difficult thing to give up? Judas is there and then there's Mary. Mary is not unlikely to be in the story either. But what she does, no one saw coming. We're told that Mary takes this alabaster jar, which at that time was a kind of a ceramic thing that had a long swan-like neck. And to get what was inside of it out, you had to break the neck off. At that moment when you broke the jar, there was no going back. It was use what's inside and it's over. You have made the decision. Mary breaks off what was likely her most prized, valuable possession. And she literally pours it out on the ground. John tells us that this was a year's worth of wages. Matthew tells us that it was worth 300 denarii. That's about a year's worth wages, probably the lifetime savings that any person would have. Uh, I looked up this week in Charlotte. Now, this seems a little high to me, but in Charlotte, the average salary is $68,000. So let's just go with that. Imagine taking $68,000 and just lighting it on fire to celebrate Jesus. Mary's action is that she goes all in. What's crazy about what she does is that she takes her most prized possession. She not only gives it to Jesus, she uses it by taking her hair down, not allowed in culture at that time, and begins to wash his feet anoint, it says, with her hair and this oil. Anointing is interesting. In, in this culture, this time, things were anointed before they were put into service for a special purpose. So you'd have things like a king would be anointed. And that happened not just in Jewish culture and in lots of cultures. A king, before he became king, would have oil poured on his head, run down his beard, and that would be the symbol of giving the authority to that person to go do what he was called to do. Uh, prophets were anointed as well, kind of showing that the power of God, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit would be transferred to you for this special purpose. Even utensils in the temple, the things they would pick up 
sacrificial food or the tongs, those were anointed. It was clear that there was a spiritual purpose at work. And Jesus says, Mary anointed him for his burial. The fact that Mary anointed him is really unexpected. If you're a person who has trouble or who doubts or who has read somewhere that that Christianity has a problem with women and you haven't actually looked at it, I want you to notice in this story, Jesus is anointed for the most significant work of his life over the next six days for his burial in the tomb, not by a prophet, not by a priest, not by a king, but by a woman. It is significant that that is who's chosen to prepare him for his service. Wow. But what's even more crazy is how everybody else responds. It says the smell of the perfume filled up the entire house. One person's all-in response to Jesus affected the entire atmosphere. That's what's possible when we, like Mary, respond by going all-in. And so I'm telling you about this cast of characters and I wanna focus in now on this action. I'm telling you about them because I want you with me to find ourselves in the story because they're just like us. Some of you, like Mary, have pushed all your chips into the middle of the table and gone all in. Your response to Jesus is yes. Now what's the question? Some of us are holding back. Maybe just a part of your life Maybe it's an area, maybe it's a a habit, maybe it's uh, just something that you believe differently that you don't quite want to see this way. I I don't know, but, but some of us have held back. I think all of us at times hold back. But the only proper response to who Jesus is in this story and in your life is to push it all into the center of the table. It's interesting, isn't it? Judas says, hey, we could have taken this money and used it to help the poor. Have you ever noticed, maybe it's just me, but have you ever noticed how uh, many people, the thing that they're the most vocal and self-righteous about is the thing they struggle with the most secretly? Could be true that a clue to where we're holding back is whatever makes us the most angry when we see it in someone else. Judas looks at this, and I think for, uh, clearly, he wanted to be able to benefit himself by stealing some more money from it. But I think Judas has got to be a human like the rest of us, struggling with his desire for money and power, for security to come from somewhere other than Jesus. And so he's the first to call it out. We're, We're told in Matthew 26, 10, it says this, Aware of this, aware of the disciples following Judas' lead and being angry at Mary, he said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And listen right here. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus says, what are you guys upset about? She's the only one in here who understands what's happening. Maybe she's the only one in this room who believes, 
Remember, he's told them over and over that he's going to die. He's going to die. He's going to die and be raised up again. I am going to be killed. And the, all the disciples are like, nah, not while we're here. I mean, maybe he's speaking metaphorically. Mary is the only one with belief and trust who says, based on that, I'm in with you, Jesus. And she does something to prove it. It's, it's an incredible response. Nobody saw this coming. And I think when Jesus says, the story will be told anywhere the gospel is preached, I was thinking about that this week. Like, I started asking the question, am I doing this wrong? Like, whenever I'm telling the God, the gospel is simply the good news that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has opened up the way back to God, that you and I can have forgiveness of sin and have eternal life with him, and the abundant, dynamic, full life that he talked about all the time, that that's available now. That's what the gospel is. That kingdom is open, the kingdom of God. But then there's the, the invitation that comes with it. Like, okay, if that's true, what do you do? And I wondered, was I supposed to tell the story of Mary every time I say that? Like, have I been doing this wrong all this time? And, and I don't think that's the thing. I think in one way, Jesus is, prophecy is true. I mean, we're talking about it right now. 2,000 years later, she's coming up. But I think even more importantly and more meaningful is he says, when the gospel is rightly told and heard, this is the only way to respond. When you hear this message of what I'm willing to give, what I gave, what I'm offering, the only proper response is to say, yes, I'm all in. It was an extravagant act of love. And that act of love caused ripples throughout the party. People got mad. Jesus explains what's really going on. And then we're told this in Matthew 26, 14, what happens the next day. One of the 12, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and he said, remember, this is on the heels of the event we just talked about with Mary. He says, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. And from that time, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Eastland, 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver is all it took. Mary pours out something worth a lifetime of savings. And Judas is willing to betray and turn his back on Jesus for 30 people. It's not insignificant, but it's not the same value that he's worth. And it got me asking the question. I think we're so easily bribed. We're so easily bribed to betray or to turn our back or to hold back from Jesus by far less value than he gives us. You don't have to shake your head, but just as I'm, as I'm saying this, does this resonate? That there are places in your and my life where, where we, like Judas, like, like any of them who holds back, where we could be tempted to just say, I'm not going all in on that. And you know, one of the best ways to, to figure it out is when you're in a church service, let's say, what makes you the most tense? that we do or say or that happens. If I start talking about forgiveness, 
And there's a part of you that just tenses, gets a little sweat, because you don't want to forgive. Because you still, and, and I, we all have these moments, right? We still want to be able to hold someone responsible. And I feel like if I forgive, that I'm giving up my opportunity to get revenge or to make it right or whatever. That might be the place that you most need to surrender and go all in with. It, maybe it's when we take up the offering. I mean, maybe it's that, it's finances. We want that control, that certainty. If that makes you squirm or get hot or start talking about how churches just want your money, maybe it's a place to consider meeting God and, and talk about surrender. Maybe it's with pride or politics or sexuality. I don't know what it is for you, but you know, probably even as I'm talking right now, there's, it's in your head and, and, and you're thinking about this. But all of those places, this is not to make anyone feel guilty. Those are all opportunities to meet God. In the most unexpected place, we think we need to come to him perfectly filled out and, and cleaned up. And he wants to actually meet you where you're the most broken. Jesus wanted to meet Judas where he was most broken. And Judas said no. So the question is, what's your next step? What, what is your next step of going all in? Again, I know some of you are walking faith out like, unbelievably. But most of us have something that's the next thing for us to do. One really practical and really public way, very similar to Mary's anointing, is to go all in in baptism. To take that step where you in front of people, in front of the world, that you say like, yeah, I'm a Jesus follower and I am going to get in that pool and go through what he commanded us to do. That could be the next step for many of you. Uh, we're going to do that at Easter. And I'd love to see dozens of people across our campuses and people who come from online in to be able to take a step and say, I'm going in with Jesus. That might be it. I, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you need to write it down or, or put a note, but you know. What are you holding back? Because many of us feel like we've missed God. He's not showing up. There's not enough power. Maybe, maybe we feel like we can't find him. And it's because he's waiting for us to meet him in the total surrender. And all you have to do is take the next step. See, I don't think Mary happened like just in a moment. I think she had taken steps all along the way. And at this night, at this time, she finally said, I'm all in. And, and maybe that's what's, that's where you are. So I just want us to ask this week, what's my next step? Because the gospel, the, the invitation in the gospel, it's way more like a marriage proposal than like a club that you sign up to join. It's way more, I don't want to be your boyfriend anymore. It's way more like in a marriage where Jesus looks at us and says, I will give you everything. And I just want everything back. I think Mary saw Jesus in this moment for who he was. See, everyone at that party got something from Jesus. They'd all received a benefit. Uh, Simon was healed. Lazarus wasn't dead anymore. Mary and Martha got their brother back. The disciples had a community and power and, and a new life. 
Judas even had a little petty cash he could take money for. I mean, everybody got something by hanging around Jesus. But only Mary responded to who he is and not just what he did for her, not just the benefit. So I wanna end this message by just asking you to join me in prayer. And I mean, join me. Because I'm saying the same thing. God, where am I holding back that you wanna meet me? Because folks, when we go all in with Jesus, we find the life that we've been looking for in everything else. So you pray with me now. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that in this story, 2,000 year old story, not a public royal banquet, just a dinner at somebody's house that wasn't just a dinner. You showed up in the most unexpected ways, showing us, teaching us what a proper response to you looks like, giving us the invitation to join you with our whole selves in worship that's really worship. Lord, I, I thank you that we have this to read and I thank you that we now have a challenge in front of us to respond to. Thank you that you don't expect us to show up with everything worked out and cleaned up and, and perfectly fit, but you invite us one step further in over and over again. And every time we take it, you meet us with more of you. God, that's what I want. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for this church. That maybe even over these weeks as we move towards Easter, that what we would find is there is such a response in our celebration and worship of who you are, not just what you can give us. That it is contagious. That it spills out onto our friends and neighbors. That people who are desperate for hope see in us this reflection of who you are, Jesus. And then you show up again in the most unexpected place. Give us courage that whatever we hear from you in this moment, that we need to do as a next step, God, give us courage to take it. I pray your grace and your mercy and your joy would be all of ours as we walk. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen.